For some Christians have bought into the pursuit of this philosophy, pleasure is above all. I don't know that there's any of us here tonight who fall into that category, but I will say to you that I have been doing what I do long enough and counseled people long enough to know that that's true. Christians sometimes buy into this philosophy that they should have pleasure at all cost. Sitcoms depict for us the absence, that things like abstinence, abstinence is something that is really for the undesirable, the unenlightened, or the prudish. Advertisements blatantly attempt to seduce us into thinking that we should acquire everything that they have for sale or that they say would make our lives better and easier and more attractive. Even sometimes we might find ourselves thinking we need something that we didn't know we needed until we saw that particular advertisement or depiction of what we should all feel like we need. And I say to you even this, that many churches no longer place holy living at the top of their teaching priority list. Let's not talk about that because it makes people, some people, uncomfortable. Or it might make them feel guilty. And technological revolution has taken temptation to an entirely new level than what some of us grew up thinking and knowing. It's bigger and it's badder than it has ever been with regard to what we can access just with the touch of a button and our fingertips. What we can meditate upon and dwell upon and think about and integrate into our basic fundamental thinking about who we are, what we are, and who we ought to be. But purity the Bible explains to us, is a powerful alternative to our culture's doctrine for living in joy. While our culture says this is the way, while our society says this is the way to be happy, while our world says that, no matter what country you live in, God offers an alternative to that. And we're going to talk a little bit about God's alternative to that this evening. So it's great to see everybody here this evening. Uh, don't you love coming together on Sunday night? It's been a long time since I got to speak on Sunday night, but uh, I enjoy doing it. It, it. it oftentimes is looked at as a more relaxed time. I would say to you, it's no more relaxed than it is every time we come before God in our worship to God. And right now, as the Lord's table has been open all day long, and we continue and we don't stop until the end of this evening's services, that's true with every aspect of our worship. We don't shut down on Sunday morning and then start back up on Sunday night. We worship all day long. And this is just a manifestation of what we're doing even in between these meeting times. And I appreciate that so much about each of you for being here this evening and understanding that point, that worship to God on God's day is important. And it's a shame that many churches are shutting down their Sunday evening services uh, and stifling that desire of God's people to be together on Sunday evening, even then, to worship God. And, uh, and I appreciate your presence this evening. Appreciate all those who helped us in worshiping God today. If you're a guest with us this, morning, uh, this evening, appreciate you being here as well. Came across an article I thought I'd share with you, at least an excerpt from it. I don't want to read the whole thing. It's very long and it's, it's actually a little bit crass. But, uh, but it's from a, 
a psychologist whose name is Megan Turner. Uh, not, not that Megan Turner, but a different one. And, uh, and she's got a lot of initials behind her name and d- pedigrees of all kinds that, uh, that she, you know, that she uh, would be uh, greatly looked upon by those of the world. And she says the following in this article. I'll read you the title of it. Purity Culture, colon, Repercussions and How to Heal Sexual Shame. And this is what she says. The Christian life means that you have to deny yourself and use lots of self-control if you feel attracted to another person. You have to turn it off and shut it all down. Just as you cannot selectively numb your emotions, you cannot selectively shut down body process, bodily processes. Your brain and your psychological, your anatomical body parts re, uh, react to feeling attraction. Years of practice of shutting those down can lead to mental health and physical concerns. I'll just say to you, that's one reason people who need counseling, and there's nothing wrong with needing counseling, better be careful who it is they select to counsel them. This woman has it upside down. I don't say that because I'm qualified. I say that because God is qualified. He's the creator of the human psyche, and God would indicate to us she's got that upside down. And even somebody like myself can can identify that. I would actually argue that biological and medical science actually prove to us, along with God's Word, of course, that humans who do not adhere to God's intended sexual purity are creating for themselves mental health and physical health, not to mention spiritual health, problems for themselves. Now that's what God's Word declares to us, and we don't need somebody who's been trained in a worldly school to tell us any different, I would say. That the, that the creator of the world knows much more than the created in the world knows. And that's always been true, will always be true. And, and in fact, I would go on to say, if we think about this for just a second, in logical conclusions, it isn't moral purity that has caused physical concerns. Like STDs. Like the new, the new uh, uh, monkey pox that's out. Trans- transmitted through sexual contact. Or like AIDS in time past, or a host of other STDs that we could mention. That's not, that doesn't come into the world from moral purity. It comes in from the opposite of moral purity, doesn't it? It isn't moral purity that creates all kinds of emotional trauma and heartbreak and regret and tears of sorrow that some of us sitting here, before we were acting like Christians, were extremely familiar with because of the way we were conducting ourselves in the world. Right? Moral purity didn't bring those things into people's lives. It's the absence of moral purity that did that. Nothing about sin and those who ignorantly misrepresent it is life-saving. Sin is the opposite of life-saving. Nothing about sin is somehow better for our physical or our mental, spiritual state. Sin does not make us better people. It makes us traumatized people. 
It does nothing good for us. It only hurts us more. It's not our listening to God's teaching on purity that we need help recovering from, as this one author says. It's our having listened to the world and its upside-down ideas, philosophies, and teaching that we need help and recovery from. I would say to you that no matter our age, you might be an old person, you might be a young person, I'll let you define the parameters of all of that, but all of us need renewed thinking about personal purity, no matter how old we get. It starts when we're pretty young, and I don't know that it ever that it ever fully ends until we exit from this life. Christianity is this, is this beacon that is held up in Scripture, the champion against what brings pain and heartache and trauma and regret and eternal damnation. It is the champion against those things that the world creates and tells us Well, if you live this way, you will not suffer these things. And it's just not true. It's actually just the quite opposite of what is true. Christianity is a champion of these things. And it shows behind it this source of purity that there is no power like the power that we gain through Jesus Christ to make our lives better and to gain a purity like His, we cannot survive. Certainly this would be true with regard to eternal perspectives without Him. He does make our physical life better. He also makes, obviously, our spiritual life better. But oftentimes the world gets these things just upside down, and sometimes we who are Christians start buying into that. And it's garbage. And when we take the garbage in, then we have garbage come out. It isn't automatic, though, is it? To reject those things. To think in terms of purity rather than impurity. That which is proper instead of those things which are improper. That just doesn't come natural to us. We have to choose those things. And Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 at verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and down in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Everyone has temptations once we come to a certain age. Everyone has those. Yours are not different from mine. The person sitting next to you are not different from you. Everyone has temptations. And God is faithful. Let's bring God into the equation. Because we're left without any hope without that. So Paul says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond, what, uh, beyond your ability. But with the temptation, will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. I say to you that without God, our well-being and our, and our purity are absolutely impossible tasks to accomplish. We could not do it. Some things never change, do they? We still live in an impure world, and God is still telling us, I am on your side. 
Don't believe what the world says that I am against you. I am for you in every way that I can be. And we will be overcomers through that belief, that promise. I say to you that I can testify from personal experience and and the observation of many other people's lives that are God's people, that by the help and the power of God, the battle against Satan and his weapon of impurity, it is winnable one battle at a time. It is winnable. It isn't that powerful that we cannot choose what is right and follow after it. We can choose not to be victims of this evil assault that Satan puts out there. It's powerful. I'm not downplaying that. In fact, we might say that sexual impropriety might be one of the more powerful sins that Satan has has put out there for us. But it is winnable. It's winnable one choice at a time. God is stronger than Satan. God provides the way of escape every single time that we face it. He is stronger than our temptation and He is stronger than sin. God is on our side in all of this. He cares for us and He loves us enough to enlighten us into light, out of darkness, in other words, on what has and will most certainly bring pain and harm into human life and existence. And He assures us He'll not allow any temptation to win in our life because, you see, He promises that He will create a way to escape that temptation just designed for you and me. Just designed for the situation itself so that we can, if we desire, to make the right choice. That is a great promise for us, isn't it? But I would say to you that God wanting us to be happy does not mean anything goes. Does God want us to be happy? I hear people all the time that misrepresent that and they say, God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants whatever it is. God does too want us to be happy. It creates to be miserable. Everything in Scripture talks about the, the psyche of a Christian being positive, happy, joyful. <laughs> To say God doesn't want us to be happy, that's just not biblically true. There's many passages that talk about how God says what He says for our benefit. That is to say, to make our life better. Now, if you don't like having a better life, then I guess that'd be unhappy. But I'm just saying, the whole purpose is for us to be happy in Him, isn't it? To be joyful in Him. To recognize that the plain talk that He gives over this or any other transgression against the laws that He has created in this world. Those are to make us happy people. Those are to make us better. Those are to give us, give us the, you know, the drunk that goes into the bar and, and he gets in a bar fight and the next morning he wonders where those bruises came from. We don't have those problems. Why? Because we don't go to the bar. He keeps us from the things that harm us. Now that doesn't mean we're not going to have problems. I'm not saying that. But it does mean that God's design is that we have a clear conscience in all that we are doing, even when we come under assault, even when temptation comes our way, even then, He gives us a way to escape that for our benefit, for our good. 
I want you to uh, notice in Romans chapter 6 and in verse 13, Romans 6 and in verse 13, he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Get the picture. Understand what he's saying. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Have you ever thought about this? He did not bring us to life so that our instruments could do deadly things. I mean, that's really what he's saying, isn't it? I brought you to life for your instruments to be uh, used for God, instruments of righteousness, that which is right, in other words. Sometimes that religious word gets us, righteousness. just means doing what's right. To be right in, in the sight of God. That's all the word righteousness means. Do you consider your body as an instrument along with all of, all, all of the other bodies God created to do that which is right as compared to coming out of, getting away from, being an instrument to death? It's a neat idea, isn't it? It helps us to think better, deeper, than we might otherwise think. Clear commands that God gives here. Easy alternatives. Simple to understand, but awfully difficult to conform to. Difficult to conform to. You see, if it wasn't difficult, then it wouldn't be a temptation, would it? We wouldn't get to prove who we're for and who we're against. One of the major problems we live with are the incredible and the strong temptations that come our way. We face those daily. Not one of us here tonight who is of an accountable age does not know that that's true. Every day we face multiple temptations. Whether it's what's going, inside, going on inside of us or what's going on outside of us. We face these temptations. God gives plain talk about it. He wants us to live a pure life. Well, in response to that difficulty, I hope that we understand temptations makes our, make our life difficult. I mean, that's what we've been saying. Everybody has them, but it's also what makes our life difficult. And in response to that, some have just simply said, well, I quit. I'll let Satan have his way with my life, my soul. It might result in eternal loss, but at least I don't have the problems. I would say to you and remind each of us in our minds and in our hearts that Jesus says that result in that situation is going to be worse for us than the beginning. If we think this life is hard, try an eternity without Him. Anywhere. Not providing any kind of help to us. Not providing all the daily things that we get from God. A complete absence from the One who created us is not a good choice to make. Jesus described it as a place where the fire is not quenched and a worm does not die in Mark chapter 9, verse 48. That's a pretty graphic description for us to understand what He means when He talks about the absence of God in our existence. For all I know, He meant it quite literal. But even if it was figurative, it sure puts an impression in our mind, doesn't it? James chapter 4 and verse 7 tells us we have that option 
of just letting it all go and letting the devil have his way with us because it's easier, or being who God says we should be, and that is one who submits ourselves to God, resists the devil, and we're given the promise here that God will see to it that Satan will flee from us. Every temptation we undergo is a temporary temptation. It's not a permanent thing. We don't have to deal with that forever. It's just that moment. Make the right choice. Do the right thing that you know God would have you to do. It's temporary that you have to make this choice. Ask for God's strength to build you in the moment. He goes on to say in verse 8, we can draw near to God and He promises that He will draw near to you. In that relationship, we have security. In that relationship, we have assurances. In that relationship, we know that joy will come from that. And just like we know the opposite is true if we forego it. One commentator and historian writes the following. It's another uh, portion of a quote from an article, and I'd like to share it with you. He says, amongst the Jews, marriage was theoretically held in highest esteem. It was said that the Jew must die rather than commit murder or, or idolatry or adultery. But in fact, divorce was tragically quite easy. The stricter rabbis conformed that term to mean adultery. But over time and generations, a laxer teaching widened its scope to include matters like spoiling a dinner by putting too much salt in the food, or going about in public with your head uncovered as a woman, or taking uh, or talking with men in the streets that were not her father or brothers, being a brawler woman, which was defined as a woman whose voice could be heard in the house next door. It's funny to me that none of those things were true for the men, just for the women. Nonetheless, this is why the Pharisees would come to Jesus. It, it puts an, a, a little deeper understanding on why the Pharisees would come to Jesus and they would test Him saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for, and make note of it, any cause? That's one of those underlinable words, right? Make a note of it in your text. For any cause. Matthew 19, verse 3. To which Jesus would answer in verse 9, and if you just allow me to paraphrase for sake of time, no, that isn't right. And that is not what God intended from the beginning. Rather, and He defines the idea of impropriety from the old covenant concept in the law of Moses or unholiness in a woman, and that is sexual immorality, which we know to be having sex with someone not her husband. Vice versa would be true, obviously. It's just that the context is about the woman by these Pharisees who were all men coming to Jesus to ask this question. This kind of immorality wasn't just among the Jews. Demosthenes, I can't say that word, I'm sorry. That's a difficult Greek word. Uh, he, or, or Greek name. Uh, name your first child that name, that'll be great. Uh, but uh, the, the, he was a Greek statesman and, and an orator in, in ancient Athens, somewhere around 4 B.C., uh, right during that time period. And he says, We keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs of the body. And we keep wives for the begetting of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. Terrible perspective on morality. 
terrible. Hurtful and harmful to any society. No wonder that government fell from the inside out. No wonder. Classical antiquities are filled with this kind of thing. Many others speak of impure practice of homosexuality in the Greek society that they lived in. The most socially significant in ancient Greece, among elitists, the most elite circles, was between adult men and adolescent eunuch boys. Societies that start going bad will continue to go bad unless they listen, stop, back up, and have a sense of morality based on the will of God and what He has created in the laws that He has created. Anything else will progress to something worse and worse as time is, uh, is fulfilled. All of these things describe to us the continual results of ignoring and disbelieving and just the absolute utter rejection of the instruction that comes to us from God. Even as early as the Genesis account, we can see that kind of thing happening. Perversion with regard to impurities. And what that leads to Paul would describe it even further, even going all the way back to that period and working his way forward. God's judgment against all sexual immorality and impurity. I got to thinking about this a little bit when I was studying through this for myself and, and, and getting this lesson prepared for tonight. And the thought occurred to me, and maybe you would agree, maybe you wouldn't, if the New Testament writers were to come back today, do you think that they would just be, what in the world is happening here? Do you think they would look at the American society and go, Whew. now they might if they look at how fast things have gone, maybe that's a difference. But I would say to you that they wouldn't be surprised at all. Evil humanity always acts like evil humanity. And God's people have always been on the earth fighting against that, fighting for God, trying to stand against those kind of things, and struggling in the process. I don't know that anything has changed, do you? I mean, sin is still sin, and redemption is still found through God. I mean, what has changed about all those things? We say, well, the, the, sense of, the sense that people have and the degree to which they've gone into this kind of immorality, I say to you, that hasn't changed. In fact, it still might be better than it used to be, at least from some perspectives. So in the First Thessalonian letter, in chapter 4, I get you to turn over there with me if, if you're turning with me in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to read about verse 8 verses in this text, so it's a little bit lengthy. And you'd be good to, to follow along, if, if you will. Paul continues in this sense of morality compared to immorality. And he says to the brethren, remember he's writing to Christians, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, now look at this, just as you are doing. We could say that about us today still. Faithful Christians trying to remain faithful. 
that you do so more and more. Some your version might say as a as a phrase you might be familiar with, excel still more and more. That's where that comes from. Verse 2, he goes on to say, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Now don't miss it. You can't get more plain than this statement right here. He just flat out says, This is the will of God. What, Paul? Your sanctification. Sanctification, another religious word or biblical word. It just simply means being set apart from that which is profane. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Learn how to live with your body in such a way that you glorify God with that body. That's what that means, right? Verse 5. You know, put controls upon your body. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. I think that what he means there is have proper sense about each other in God's family. He may even mean that in a more universal sense about fellow man. Have a proper sense of who you are. And what this is all about. And not to think improperly toward one another. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you, and uh, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. Well, here's the warning. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Now, we're not done there. Let's go on and look at what he says over in Romans. Go back over to Romans. And I want to read to you a familiar passage. We've heard it many times this year. You probably quote it by now, at least to some degree. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Look at what he says here. Have you ever noticed this? That you present your what? Bodies. Bodies. Well, I got my head right, and my soul's good. Yeah, my body's not quite... No, no, no. He says, your bodies matter in all of this as a living sacrifice. I give things up from time to time, and that's my living sacrifice. You know what he says here? Your body is a living sacrifice. What you do with it is a living sacrifice as God's looking upon all of this, as God sees this. It's a living sacrifice. It needs to be holy, acceptable to God, which is your, now he goes to the spiritual, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The first thing we need to notice out of that text is that God does not first speak about just our soul and our spirit. He first talks about our body and the need for the mind to be transformed as well. Paul expounds on a little bit more by teaching what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Look at what he says here. Your bodies are members of Christ. Therefore, verse 18 says, 
Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexual immorality, sexual, a sexual immoral person, sins against his or her own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Listen, the point of that is to say it doesn't matter what's going on in your head and if you know right from wrong. If you're doing with your body what God says not to do, then it is valueless. we got to let our body be trained by what's in our heart. By that we would say what's in our mind. What we know pleases God has got to be something that comes outside so that we don't do or we do do certain things. Do do. We do certain things with our body. I don't know why we always use two do's there. It makes no sense. But anyway, how can God be more clear than what He is right there in that context, right? How many times do we have to hear the word body to know that what we do with our body matters to God? How we treat our body matters to God. And yet there is a continual barrage. Daily barrage. From the TV to the office. Sometimes even among some family members. You name it. This sin creeps in and presents itself before us. The temptation is there telling our youth and telling even adults alike, older adults even, none of that really matters. Just forget about that. As long as you know what's right inside, that's what matters. If you're a man, it's okay to say that you're a woman. To act infeminate like a woman. To dress like a woman. To have a change of your body parts like a woman. If you're a man, you, you owe, you, or if you're a woman, you owe it to yourself to say that you are and, and you have every right to act like a man. If that's the way you feel, then you have that right and you should be allowed to express that right. Now, nobody's saying that we ought to do something damaging towards somebody. I'm not saying that. Everybody has the right to make a choice. But I'm speaking to us with regard to what God, how God looks at this thing. Not an American right. A biblical right or wrong. Just become whatever you want. Do whatever you want. With whomever you want. And everybody should just be fine with that. Well, maybe everybody in America or some other part of the world, some other country, might think that they should be alright with that. But God says, no, that's not right. And God's people, brothers and sisters, God's people should be standing for what God says is right. Do not be deceived by the influences that present themselves to us on a daily basis. God says, flee from sexual immorality and those who refuse are sinning against themselves and God. Their own body and the God who made it. God doesn't have gray areas in all of this. 
He sees men as men and women as women and he expects them to act like it. person says, well, I don't feel like that inside. God made you that way on the outside and your body matters to God. Treat it the way he created it to be treated. God says all this because we matter. person comes out of that kind of equation and they go, well, God just must not, must not care about me. It's exactly the opposite. God cares everything about everyone that He has created. Regardless of their situation, regardless of what they might feel at the time, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19 says, God has a place with you. And He is stronger than temptation, and He is stronger than sin, and He is stronger than feelings. God directs our path. Period. What if we thought that way about everything? Think about that. What if we thought that way about everything? Well, I feel like killing this person, so I just go kill them. Does that be okay? Well, I feel like this, so I just go do that. Is that is, is, everything's under that, guys? Or is that just sexual immorality, you see? That's the point that Paul is getting to, that your body matters, and what goes on inside that body is seen by God, heard by God, and matters to God. He created that body, and He didn't mess it up. The world does that to us. The world makes us think in those ways. Our body has been bought with a price. And oh, brethren, don't we know that price was everything. What did He hold back? so that we could make right choices with our bodies. Your body is to glorify God, verse 20. God has a purpose for you. God gave something incredible for you. And God has a place with you. That's what Paul's declaring. Therefore, glorify God since He gave you everything. That's what he's saying. Glorify God because He gave you everything. It's not about self. It's about Him. It is about Him. I just say to you, if you read Matthew chapter 19, the Lord goes on to say in that text, some people can't accept that. The, the apostles say, well, Lord, if this is the case with regard to marriage and divorce and remarriage, then why should anybody get married? He goes, not everybody should get married. That's exactly what He says. Some people make themselves eunuchs for God's kingdom. Some people are made that way by men. And then there are some who are born that way. Sometimes we do the right things because of the kingdom of God. Not because it's easy. Not because society says, well, I'll be this way. We do it because we know what's right. And we're part of the kingdom of God. And we want to give Him a spiritual sacrifice with who we are. And this is what everyone forgets who refuses God's instruction. It's all about Him. And the world would turn everything upside down and make us think exactly opposite of what the right side up laws of God teach us. We cannot be victims of that. A refusal to submit to God's will is a refusal to glorify and honor Him who made us and knows what is best for us. 
even if it means that we have to live for this period of time of our existence, rejecting some specific thing that we might not like. A young person may be asking them, why did God give me these sexual desires? And maybe an older person's asking that, I don't know. And I would say to you that in short, it's because we can't procreate without these desires. The human race would cease to exist for one thing. Secondly, to provide something special that is meant only to exist between a man and a woman who become a husband and wife within a marriage, lifelong marriage relationship. There's nothing more special. It is worth waiting for. The Hebrew writer teaches us in Hebrews chapter 13 and at verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. But make no mistake, he then follows up with this, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And I don't think that's meant in a good way. Our body is not given so that we can abuse it, so that we can pervert it. The world is constantly telling us it's okay. It's okay. To them, we must, we must say what God says, and that is, it isn't okay. And we must instead say yes to God. God, He directs our life, not the world. God directs our thinking. God directs our heart. God directs our bodies, not the world. Not the way the world reasons. Not the way the world thinks. Not the wisdom that is in the world. None of that directs us. God does that. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he says, prepare. Now, this is, this, is a, this is an attitude of getting a jump on what's happening. Right? Prepare for something. What is it we should prepare for? Prepare the mind for action. And be sober-minded. He goes on to say in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of, <coughs> sorry, of your former ignorance. <coughs> but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you be holy for I am holy. I wrote down in hand just before I got here this evening, what about if we have messed up already? We, what we've talked about is how God says, that'll destroy you. The way the world thinks and what the world does, that's going to destroy you. Don't go that way. But sometimes, sometimes we do. I would say to you that probably in some sense of immorality, whether it is just lust in general or sexuality, the way we've talked about it tonight, but in some sense or another, all of us here have been impure so we all have messed up in some way or another. Oh man, what are we going to do? Right? What then? You know, you know as well as I do, some things can't be undone. I'm just going to play like it never happened. Well, that, that, that might be good, but you better get right with God first because He knows what did happen. No one who knows anything about God and God's Word and His hand in our life can accuse God of somehow hurting us, holding us back, or not really loving us. If we know something about God, we know that's the fact. 
And we can see that from Scripture quite easily. You remember one of the most quoted passages in all the Bible of John 3.16 that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That tells us God loves us. God does want what is best for us. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and at verse 8, uh, 1 Peter 1 and at verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse 18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Man, look at that word. Not perishable with the precious blood. Feudal ways. Ransom from them. Bought back from them. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. That's an ongoing process, in other words. And worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That would include anything God has said is wrong. Period. We train ourselves to live what is right. That He says is good. That is according to His will. Waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Look at this, verse 14. You think God doesn't care for us? Look at what He says. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Thank God for that statement. All lawlessness. And then to purify Well, I've become unpure. What do I do? I've messed up. Let God purify you. That's what you do. God can do that. God's stronger than sin. And He gave Himself for a people for His own possession to do good works. You know, as I was thinking about that particular section of text, the thought came to my mind, maybe it does yours as well, that every moment Jesus endured the hatefulness of humanity in their sin. He did that for us. You recognize that in the sacrifice of Jesus, we see the absolute detestable hatred toward what is right and embracing of what is evil. That's what the society had come to. Every blow rendered upon Jesus was for us. Every every, uh, piercing of the flesh that was torn from His body with that scourge, that whip, was for us. Every thorn that pierced His brow was on our behalf, for our benefit. Every nail that was driven through Him was for us. For us, Every streak of blood that He had to blink away was for our benefit. So that we could live without impurity in our life. All of that was for us. Every drop and sweat of blood that fell from His body as He hung there on the tree, the reason He stayed there was for our benefit. Not for His. Not for God. That's the love that we see in Him. 
Every bit of that was God's expression of love for an evil or a sinful, for a piece of humanity that had gotten impure and needed redemption. Absolute love. I want to tell you, anybody who studies the Bible with any honesty at all can understand the love of God for an evil humanity and His desire to win them back and make them good again. You can't miss that. No one can accuse God of not loving them, of somehow suppressing them, of somehow pushing them down. All He wants is what He created us for. And that is the absolute good of self, others. God gave everything so that we would not die in sin. He loves us enough to tell us the truth. The person said, I don't like that truth. Well, that's your prerogative. There were a lot of people who didn't like the truth of Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Didn't mean that he was wrong. Just meant they didn't want to hear it. God loves us enough to be honest and truthful with us. To give himself as a sin sacrifice to save us. When we fail, when we transgress his truth, when we get to thinking differently about ourselves than what he created us to think. God gave himself for that. He gave himself for every person who's become impure. You, me, and somebody else. Until we each come to take sin seriously, we will never gain a deeper understanding and appreciation of what those verses mean when they tell us these facts, these truths that God holds dear. God does love you. And God desires that we be a pure people and His family a pure family. And thanks be to Him, He gives us the benefit as His children of choice. And thanks be to Him, He gives us forgiveness when we choose wrong. When we get to thinking wrong, He allows us to return. There is no greater blessing given by God than that. We're talking more than just physical life. We're talking eternal. Purity doesn't come by the personal power of perfection or inerrancy on our part. All have sinned, and the Bible says they fall short. We continue to do that. It's not our sinlessness that makes our purity possible. It is our Luke chapter 15, verse 10, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of heaven over one sinner who repents. Over one out of billions. Over one. Can you honestly believe that God is not for you? That God does not want the absolute best for people. It is true among His family on earth as well. There's joy over every single one who repents. God's people are the most loving and caring people on earth. 
And there's no greater privilege than to be part of that great family. There's no family like that family. I would say to you, if you need to make change today that you, maybe you don't know how or where to go. And I would say the how is found in Jesus and the where is found right here, right now with his family. That's no better place to choose to do what God wants you to do with your life. I know I have made it a habit to do so. I don't apologize for it. Uh, Maybe you like it, maybe you don't, but I love ending sermons in a prayer. And I just ask you to pray with me as we close in prayer. Father, we pray earnestly to you that when sin exists in our lives, we do what we should and we deal with it between you and self. May we be pure through your sacrifice. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for changing us. Thank you for restoring us. Guide the hearts of each of us who have looked at your word and scripture today, throughout the whole day, that we put away impurities and we hold more closely to you and your will. Be with those students who are beginning their return to school this week that we prayed for earlier. Each and every one of them, we pray your hand in their life, that they be lights that shine in a dark place, and that they remember who they are, who you would have them to be, who you created them to be, and that they display the joy that only comes through you. And may they foster good conscience in their life, and may they appreciate the salvation that comes through Jesus. May they hold that as first and foremost in their life, and may it dictate to them the way that they should live, whether it is internal thinking or, as we looked at tonight, outward activity. We thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for all that he does. We thank you for the straightforward truth that comes through him that we read of in your word, and we pray that it have the power that it should in our life, that it direct our hearts, that it cause us to be more and more righteous as you would have us to be and created us to be. Through him that we pray all these things. Amen. If you need to respond to the Lord this evening, let us help you in that. We'll support you in that by coming forward as we stand and as we sing together.